So uh, obviously today is Resurrection Sunday, uh, so let's try this, right? He is risen. We don't, we don't even have to do it a second time. Y'all already knew. Things have changed up in here. All right. <laughs> That's really cool. I like hearing that because indeed he is risen. Um, well, today I'm, I'm going to be preaching a topical sermon. Uh, that means I'm not going to be anchoring down in any one particular text this evening. Instead, uh, I'll be moving to different parts of Scripture in order to address a particular subject. And as I'm sure you guessed, our subject this evening is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in this sermon, I'll be seeking to answer this question. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Or, what are the implications of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, the, now the New Testament is very clear that the resurrection of Jesus is incredibly important and vital to our faith. And often we take that as a given, right? Well, of course, right? We confess that in the creeds. Yes, Jesus is raised from the dead. Uh, but I think often we take that as a given, but don't give much thought as to why the resurrection is an absolute essential and core doctrine of our most holy faith, right? Like, why is it that the Apostle Paul can say what he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, where he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Paul says that our whole religion depends on the resurrection of Jesus. But why? Why is the resurrection so important? In other words, in light of how important the resurrection is to the authors of the New Testament, I think we begin to see that the resurrection must mean something. Or it must mean multiple things. Um, What I'm getting at is it's much more than just a fact of history. There's meaning behind it. There's significance to the resurrection. But what does it mean? And that's the question I'll be seeking to answer this evening from Scripture. Now, before I begin, I want you to know uh, that this sermon is in no way exhaustive. Uh, I just want to present to you four things that the resurrection means or proves. Um, And these things have to do with Jesus and his person and the benefits given to us by him in his resurrection. Uh, But the four things that I'll be mentioning tonight are not all that can be said. And to be honest, each of these points I'm going to be making could be sermons of their own, uh, even multiple sermons. So I'm just going to be giving you a broad overview of Jesus' resurrection and why we should consider it precious as the people of God. All right, so now to begin, if you would, just bow your heads with me as we go to our Lord and ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word. Our God and Father, we come before you now and we ask for your blessing. Please work in us this evening as we humbly and eagerly listen to your voice speak in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak a word of encouragement to us this evening. Speak a joyful word to us. Speak a glorious word to us. Show us your Son. Show us our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Grant to us a sight of his glory. Help us to understand and marvel at the miracle of the resurrection and all that it means. Help us to glory in our resurrected King and the blessings that he graciously gives to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, do these things in us. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So, uh, to begin, I'm, just going to, I'm going to state the resurrection of Christ, and then I'm going to briefly defend it before we jump into this for your edification. Um, first, the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead is one of the single most frequently asserted truths of the Bible. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, 
in many places, probably most famously in Psalm 16, uh, where it says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not let your Holy One rot in the grave. Uh, and also in Isaiah 53, where it said that the Messiah will see his offspring. And this is after he is crushed by the Lord and dies. Right? So again, those are probably the two most famous places in the Old Testament. But it's prophesied that Jesus would be raised from the dead throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and then in the New Testament, we see many explicit statements regarding the resurrection of our Lord. Let me read you some. Matthew 28, 5 and 6. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Right? Mark 16, verse 6. And he, the angel, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Luke 24, verses 5 and 6. The angels say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. In the first sermon that Peter delivered in Acts chapter 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up, that is delivered up to death, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking to the Jews, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Or in Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6, which, by the way, was written between 20 and 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Very early. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So all of this, I'm sure, is old hat for, for all of us, I would imagine. But this is clear proof that the New Testament affirms the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's not even to take into consideration all of the bodily appearances of Jesus in the Gospels and in the book of Acts post-resurrection. And just a quick word, uh, just for clarification, when we say resurrection, we mean a physical, bodily resurrection, right? We do not mean a spiritual resurrection or a metaphorical resurrection like the theological liberals do. We affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that he was resurrected in the same body as he was crucified in, but the resurrected body glorified and made incorruptible. We affirm that his body went from being literally dead from crucifixion, laid in a tomb, and on the third day being literally alive in a glorious condition. Just wanted to lay that out there for you. We believe in a literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So then, the word of God is explicitly clear that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, as he said. But as you know, there are many today who deny this fact, just as there were many in the first century who denied it. But let me submit to you that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our religion could have been killed the very same day it began. It could have. Christians have always proclaimed from the beginning, again, keep in mind, 1 Corinthians, with that passage I read to you, I delivered uh, of first importance to you what I also received. Jesus was crucified, dead, raised on the third day. That's written 20-some years after Jesus was crucified. So just real quick, uh, a lot of modern liberal scholars will say that uh, the idea that Jesus was literally raised from the dead was something that happened hundreds of years after Christianity first began. They'll try to say that. Not true. 
We've always, from the beginning of Christianity, proclaimed that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that his tomb is empty. And so then, since that's been the constant Christian proclamation, the quickest way to stop our religion would be to produce the dead body of Jesus. But guess what? (laughs) You can probably already guess because we're all here today. They couldn't do that. (laughs) Nobody was ever able to do that because he's alive. There was an empty tomb in Israel on the third day, just as Jesus said there would be. He is not there. There is and was never a body to be produced because he was raised from the dead. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is one of the surest facts in all of human history. And the fact that we are here gathered together on the Lord's day, Jesus' day, the day he was raised from the dead, is proof that they could never produce a body. Because our religion would have been gone like that if they could have produced the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth. But some unbelievers will claim today, as they did then, that Jesus' disciples must have stolen his body. And that's kind of funny, considering that in Matthew chapter 27, we're told that a guard of soldiers was placed at Jesus' tomb to guard it. Why? Because he said he was going to come back from the dead on the third day, and they didn't want anyone to steal his body. So then, to the skeptic, you mean to tell me that a group of ragtag disciples overpowered a trained and armed guard of soldiers and stole his body? Get real. Right, get real. Not only is that highly improbable, but in order to do so, the soldiers would have no doubt had to have killed, or rather the disciples would have no doubt had to have killed those soldiers, especially if they were Roman soldiers. But there's not a shred of evidence in history that there were any dead people in front of Jesus' tomb on the third day. The disciples didn't overpower anyone. Still, some will say, well, then the disciples must have stolen the body at night while the guards slept. So you mean to tell me that this group of trained guards all fell asleep at once? That they didn't sleep in shifts like they would have been trained to do under pain of death? And that, furthermore, as they all slept, Jesus' disciples came in silently, moved a small boulder away from the tomb, recovered the body of Jesus, and then put the stone back in its place and sealed the tomb without waking or alerting any of the guards who were there. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. More than that, consider this fact, and this is one of the big truths that led me to Christianity. Consider this. The disciples proclaimed that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and that by virtue of his resurrection, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And for that proclamation, the disciples were beaten, imprisoned, hated by their fellow Jews, hated by the Romans, hated by the Greeks, poor, forsaken by most of their families, and eventually met with horrible deaths because they refused to stop proclaiming that Jesus is alive. So then, if they stole his body, they knew that they were lying about everything. So then you mean to tell me that they lived and suffered and never gained a thing in this life and then went on to suffer horrible martyrdoms like stoning, beheading, being skinned alive, being boiled alive in oil, being crucified, and and many more, all for something that they knew was false. So they suffered all of that, but they continued to preach the resurrection of Jesus, all the while knowing that all they had to do to stop the suffering was quit preaching. But the skeptic means to tell us that they continued to suffer for something that they knew was a lie and benefited them nothing in this life. To such a person who believes that, I mean this gently but firmly, grow up. (laughs) Grow up. People don't die for something that they gain nothing from and suffer horribly for 
and they know it's false. Nobody does that. Only a madman would do that. And if you read the writings of these men, they're clearly not insane. Nobody does that. So then, the only real explanation for why they were willing to suffer so much is that they had seen the resurrected Lord Jesus and they were willing to die for the truth. I say all of that to say to you, dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive. He was raised from the dead. And I, for your own edification, I want you to know we have many arguments and evidences for this truth. Our faith is not in vain. But you know, just to keep it real for a minute, even with all of those arguments and rebuttals that we can give for the resurrection, ultimately, as Christians, we rest our faith in the fact that God has spoken and declared in his word that Jesus is raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirits that the word of God is indeed the word of God, and so we believe and receive it as such. So both factually and Theologically speaking, we know for a certainty Jesus Christ is alive. Not only because we have the warrant of the word of God, which is sufficient enough, but we have many evidences and arguments to show that it's true as well. Because it is true. It's a fact of history. But now having asserted and briefly defended the truth of the resurrection of our Lord, let's go on to consider some of the implications of his resurrection. First, The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. The the Apostle Paul, speaking of our Lord Jesus in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, says this, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul very clearly says that the resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And that word declared in the original means to set apart from the rest. It's a a word that means something like horizon, right? How the horizon uh, is like a line of demarcation between the sky and the earth, right? That Jesus, there's been a dividing line in the resurrection of Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that God, very powerfully, in power, in a mighty way that nobody can ever dispute ever, has set his seal upon Jesus and marked him out from the rest of the world as the Son of God when he raised him from the dead. That is, Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was vindicated in the resurrection. He was vindicated in the resurrection. Now, it's good to note here that being raised from the dead does not, in and of itself, mean that a person is the Son of God. Remember Lazarus? He wasn't the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. There are multiple cases of people being raised from the dead in Scripture. But aside from Jesus, it is never said that their resurrections declared them to be anything but recipients of great grace. So what does Paul mean then? How does Jesus' resurrection vindicate him and declare that he is the Son of God? Well, Jesus' resurrection coupled with the things that he claimed about himself. His resurrection coupled with the claims that he made about what he had come into the world to do. When taken together, declare that Jesus is the Son of God. Follow me with this. Consider for a moment the things that Jesus claimed and said about himself. He said he was the son of man, which is not just a mere reference to his true humanity, but this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, 
where Daniel describes this figure to whom God gives dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That is, that they should worship him. And that this son of man's kingdom would be eternal and never pass away. And Jesus said, I'm that one. I'm that guy. I'm that son of man. Second, Jesus claimed to be the Christ. That is, he claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be the anointed and appointed one of God who would rule over all of God's people. The Messiah who had come to bring in the kingdom of God. The one who had come to bring in the rule of God on the earth. The one who had come to bring to pass all of God's promises found in the Old Testament. This Messiah who would be an eternal king and reign forever at God's right hand. Third, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Indirectly, multiple times, but even at his trial, he explicitly claimed to be the Son of God. But a couple of examples aside from his trial, Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. That is of the same essence as the Father. More than that, he called God his Father all the time, which is nothing less than making himself equal to God. Right? And then just real quick, if you think I'm stretching that, the Jews caught on to that and wanted to kill him. Because they said, he, being a man, makes himself equal to God. And this is after he refers to God as his father. Even humanly speaking, we know that a son shares the same nature as his father. So when Jesus called God his father, which would have been a radical thing in the first century for a Jew to say, he was saying that they share the same nature. He was claiming to be God. Fourth, Jesus claimed that he had come into the world to lay down his life in order to save sinners. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He claimed that he had come to suffer and die and undergo the wrath of God in order to pay the penalty for sinners in their place. And he also told the crowds that those who did not place their faith in him, all who do not believe in him, will die in their sins. Unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. And they'll go to hell. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, for that matter. More than that, Jesus claimed that the Sabbath was his day, he said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. We know the Sabbath belongs to God. And guess what Jesus is saying there? He's making a claim to divinity. Jesus claimed to be doing the same works as God. My father works until now, and so do I. Jesus claimed that he would die and be raised from the dead three days later. In John 2, he said, destroy this body, and I'll, or destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days, referring to his body. And lastly, Jesus claimed that all of Scripture was actually about him. He told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures looking for life, but they all point to me. He said the Bible was about him. Now, Jesus claimed all of these things throughout the Gospels and more. That's just a, a, a small bit. He claimed all of these things, and then he was raised from the dead. And that verifies that he was telling the truth. Maybe you're asking yourself, well, how? How does, how does that verify? How does his resurrection verify that he's telling the truth? Well, let me put this to you. If Jesus was lying about those things... If he was not who he said he was, if he did not come to do the things that he claimed he had come to do, if he was a liar, then he was the single worst blasphemer who ever walked the face of this earth. He wasn't a liar, but if he were lying about these things, then he would have been the worst blasphemer of all time. If Jesus was lying, then he was a false prophet, false messiah, false teacher, false god, a blasphemer, and a deceitful agent of Satan. If Jesus was lying about his identity, then I would argue that he was the single worst human being who ever lived. Now why in the world would God raise such a wicked person from the dead? 
Why in the world would God help to give credibility to such a liar by raising him from the dead as the liar said would happen? Answer, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. If Jesus was lying, he would have stayed dead. More than that, if Jesus was lying, then he would have died and went straight to hell to suffer under the wrath of God for his sins. But that's not what happened. He was raised from the dead. And in that resurrection, God was setting his seal of approval on Jesus and vindicating everything that he ever said. Hear that again. Sometimes we don't think about that because we only think about the resurrection and what it means for us, like personally, like the good, we're going to get into some of those things in a minute. But know this, first off, the resurrection is the vindication of the Son of God. It's the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was proven in his resurrection to be telling the truth. Paul says here that God told the world that Jesus is his son when he raised him from the dead. So Christian, a little bit of application right off the bat. Look to the resurrection and see that your faith is in the right person. Look to the resurrection and let it be settled forever in your heart that you have trusted in the true Savior. That you have trusted in none other than God. He is no liar. And you can know that he's not a liar because he's alive. And seeing that he is risen, we see that he is trustworthy with our souls. He can actually save us, save everyone who comes to him, as he said, because God raised him from the dead. Second, the resurrection proves that our sins are forgiven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, <clears throat> And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that is those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The apostle here tells us that if Jesus is not raised, then we're still in our sins and our faith is in vain. And likewise, all who have died trusting in Jesus have died in their sins and have perished. That is, they're in hell. Now, why does Paul say this? Well, it's very similar to our first point. If Jesus was not raised, then he was an imposter and therefore cannot save anyone. If Jesus died and remained dead, then he most certainly did not die as our substitute. If he died and remained dead, then he did not die in our place in order to satisfy God's wrath for us. If he died and was not raised from the dead, then it shows that he was like every other man who had ever died before him. A sinner. A sinner. One who deserves to die. If he remained dead, he would show that he was a fallen sinner in Adam just like we are. And if he was a sinner, then he could not offer himself as a sacrifice for other sinners because in his death he would, been, he would have been being punished for his own sins. So then, if Jesus is not raised, we've placed our faith in another sinner. And we have no forgiveness of sins. Because one man cannot pay another man's debt to God. One sinner cannot pay another sinner's debt to God. If Jesus is not raised, we're all still on the way to hell. If he was not raised, our faith is in vain. And it's a worthless, empty thing that benefits no one because it's a lie. But, says Paul, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise God for that. Christ has been raised from the dead. 
And since he's alive, we can know for certain that we're no longer in our sins, that those who have died trusting in Christ are not perishing, and our faith in Jesus is not in vain. Since Jesus is alive, we can say it this way, all of the negative hypotheticals that Paul has, has given here are reversed. And the blessing of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life belong to us now. You see, in the resurrection of Jesus, God was showing his approval of Christ. He was showing his approval of Christ's sacrifice. God was saying in Christ's resurrection that he accepted Christ's suffering and death in our place. He was saying that the debt for our sin was indeed paid for by Christ. God was saying that Jesus did not die for his own sin because he didn't have any. In the resurrection, instead, God was saying that the penalty for our sin had been paid for. Like Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In Jesus' resurrection, he was declared legally righteous by God. You ever considered that? Not that Jesus needed justifying like we need justification because we're sinners. We need God to declare us righteous by faith in Christ because we are not righteous. Right? We need that. But nevertheless, the resurrection of Jesus was the justification of Jesus. In the resurrection, God was saying, you are righteous. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't an imputed righteousness. It was a legitimate, you're, I'm declaring you righteous because you are righteous. Because he had no sin. And so death had no legal hold on him, but had to give him up. This means that indeed Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Like Paul says, he died for us in order to make atonement for our sins in our place. In the resurrection of Jesus, God was saying, I approve of Jesus and his work for sinners. In the resurrection, God was putting his amen to Jesus' declaration on the cross that it is finished. And by virtue of our union with Christ, which we receive, we're united to Christ by faith in Christ, by virtue of our union with him, the approval of God toward Jesus is given to us. And we're justified in God's sight. We're forgiven. We're declared righteous with God. And we're saved. So the resurrection of Jesus proves that we have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life belongs to us through faith in him. Third, the resurrection proves that we will be raised from the dead and that there is a life to come. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here the apostle tells us that in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is the first fruits of believers. And first fruits means that Jesus was the first of many. Like in the Old Testament, when an Israelite would present the first fruits of his crops, it was symbolic of the rest of the crop that was to come. First fruits. In the same way, our Lord's resurrection is a guarantee to us that those who trust in him will likewise be raised from the dead. That he's not the only one who's going to be resurrected like this. There will be many after him resurrected. And what's more uh, is that we will be raised in a body like his, Paul goes on to explain throughout the rest of the chapter. An incorruptible, glorious, never sick, never tired, never dying body. Again, by virtue of our union with Christ, 
by faith, we will share in his resurrection. By virtue of our union with Christ by faith, we will share in the glory of his resurrection. Though we will die, our bodies will rise in glory at the last day. And our souls, having been in heaven with God since our death, will be reunited with our bodies to live in the new heavens and new earth with Christ forever. That, the, the longer I'm a Christian, the older I get, the sweeter that becomes to me. Some of you are nodding your heads. Because this world is full of hardship and pain, and we often want to be done with it. And to know that one day we will be, but we will live, and we will be raised from the dead. This should make our hearts sing. This should make our hearts sing. It's glorious for us to know that death is not the end. Our enemy, death, will not have the final word. Since our Lord Jesus conquered death in his resurrection, and we have been united with him by faith, we too share in his victory over death. What a blessing for us to know we will live forever. That we will not forever rot in the grave, but we will be raised just like Jesus. Death is not the end. That's glorious. There's more than just this life. There's another one, and it's a more glorious one for the Christian. Death isn't the end. Because we know and trust in one who has been to the grave and returned alive. There is a world to come. Praise God. There's a life to come. You know, people often like to say, again, especially in our secular atheistic culture, people like to say that there's nothing after this life. And in vain they imagine that this world is all there is, and once you're dead, you're done, and there's nothing else. I lived that way for a season. How hopeless. How horrible to think that this life is it. This life is full of suffering and pain and sickness and evil and hardship and heartache and sin. If this life is all there is, then what a terrible, terrible thing that life is. But the resurrection of our Lord reminds us that that's a lie. And that there is glory to come for the believing. There's a life to come. And there's a judgment to come upon the whole world at the end. And I want to be clear, those who do not believe upon Christ will be raised to everlasting contempt and condemnation, as Daniel tells us. They'll be raised upon, uh, under the wrath of God. But Christian, for us, the end of the world, the end of our lives, is only the beginning. As Jesus lives, so shall we. Take comfort in that, Christian. Someday, all will be well. It's not all well right now, and it won't be, even if you have an optimistic eschatology. It won't all be well until Christ comes, until the resurrection. Someday, all will be well, and you will live forever in a glorious new body with your Lord. Christian, let me encourage you this Resurrection Sunday. We have something that the unbeliever doesn't have. Hope. We have hope. We have hope in this life that this life is not all that there is. We have hope of being raised to new life and that we're going to live forever. And we have this hope because Jesus was raised from the dead for us as the first fruits of those who believe in him. Fourthly and, and finally... The resurrection proves that Jesus has all authority. This made me excited this past week. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? The Great Commission text that we're all used to hearing. When did he say this? After his resurrection from the dead. That's when Jesus said this. After making atonement for sin and being raised from the dead, God the Father bestowed upon the incarnate Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, all the authority of God. All authority in heaven and on earth. Now listen, though Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, regarding his divine nature as God, always had all authority, now, after his resurrection in the flesh, as the God-man and Messiah, he has been given authority and power over everything. Now, in his resurrected state, as the God-man, truly human and truly God, now he has all authority. After his humiliation and death, his resurrection marked the beginning of his exaltation as king of all kings and lord of all lords. His resurrection marked the beginning of it. The apostle Paul tells us this same thing, by the way, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. He says, "In being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection of Jesus is the mark of his exaltation, it's the beginning of his exaltation. His resurrection is God's placing him above all things in the creation, giving him the name that is above every other name. It's the proof that Jesus is truly king and that he will have dominion everywhere, in heaven and on earth. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess his majesty one way or another. He is over everything. Having made himself nothing and dying for sinners, God has now given him everything. Since his resurrection, Jesus has all authority everywhere. And I want to be clear. I don't mean some authority. I don't mean a lot of authority. I mean all of it. I sound like Ron Swanson. I mean all of it. All Authority. Matthew 28, 18. All authority. Now, quick question for you, especially if you like math. If Jesus has all authority, then how much authority is left for anyone else to have? None. He is the undisputed king then. He is the Lord. He is the judge. He is God. And this world now belongs to him. It's all his. Do you see that? It's his. His claim reaches to the ends of the earth and throughout space and time. It reaches down to hell and up to the highest heaven. All of it is his. He is the king. The apostle Paul echoes this again in a sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus so also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Now follow me with this. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied in Psalm 2. And on the day of his resurrection, as Paul said in Romans 1.4, God was declaring that Jesus is indeed his son. That's how Paul's using Psalm 2. But let's go and look at the rest of Psalm 2. Paul quoted one verse of it in his sermon in Acts 13, but he implies that the whole psalm applies to Jesus. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, here's what it says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What's going on here? Well, according to how Paul uses this psalm, at the resurrection of Christ, God the Father says to him, You're my son, I'm declaring it today, and this whole world now belongs to you. The ends of the earth, the nations, all of it, everything, everywhere now belongs to Jesus, and that's why Jesus says, after he is raised from the dead, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why. Because at his resurrection, the father said, ask of me, and I'll give you everything. And he asked. And so everything belongs to him. Brothers and sisters, this world belongs to Jesus. Please, please see that. It's his. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And he shall have dominion, as Psalm 72 says, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Nations shall come unto him and render tribute to him. He shall bring the nations to the obedience of faith. He will conquer the world. Now listen, I know that we have our eschatological differences. Not all of you are as optimistic about the future as I am. But... We can all praise God and give a sincere amen to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives witness to the fact that this world is His and someday He's going to conquer it. It's His. It's His. Don't be afraid to give your amen to that. You don't have to be post-mill to say that. This world belongs to Jesus Christ. So Christian, know this. You're on the right side. You're on the side of the king who's going to conquer it all. Let the world say what it will. You serve the king. Let the world hate you and mock you and persecute you. You serve the risen king of it all. Let the world attempt to shame you for serving the Lord Jesus, but know that there is no shame in serving the king who will vanquish all of his foes. Let the world do its worst. You belong to the one who owns the world. Christian, we serve the winner. We serve the one who has won in principle in his resurrection. And though we do not yet see all things under his feet, he is nevertheless subduing the world bit by bit even now. All authority belongs to him. Jesus wins. He is the king and his resurrection is the proof. So then, back to our original question. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. That our sins are forgiven and we are saved. That there is a life to come and we will be raised and Jesus is King. Christian, I want you to see how glorious and precious the resurrection is to us. I want you to rejoice in your living Lord. Rejoice in his resurrection because it is the proof of everything that we hold dear as the people of God. And if 
there is an unbeliever present with us today, I beg you to put your trust in the king who was dead but is now alive forevermore. He will take you in and all of the blessings and glories that have been spoken of this evening will belong to you, given to you by grace through faith in the risen Lord. Now I'll leave you guys with the words of the angel in Matthew 28, 6. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. He is risen, church. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for raising from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of everything. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying for us according to the will of your Father, for having mercy upon us, saving us. Try in God, we thank you for raising from the dead Jesus Christ and for all the blessings that come to us from him. Lord, help us to cherish your resurrection. Help us to glory in it. Help us to remember our salvation. Help us to remember who you are. And help us to have hope because you live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.